just like that, we were back yet again. Welcome in. This is Josh Pate, and this is the Late Kick Extra podcast. As always, a pleasure to be joined by you guys. You have submitted a number of questions, to say the very least, and the format here is very simple. We do Late Kick Live every Thursday and Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. I can only get to a fraction of the questions that you guys submit during the week via email, Twitter DMs, podcast review, and the like. And so we set aside time for you and I to talk every Wednesday or thereabouts. And this is the Late Kick Extra podcast. It's just a mailbag Q&A. We get to as many questions as possible. Some I'll answer in five seconds. Some may take five minutes. But we have a really good time with this. And I really appreciate not only you guys' contribution during the middle of a very uncertain offseason, and I'm in there right along with you guys, but also... I really appreciate the five-star reviews that you've given us and the written reviews that you've given us. So the only thing I ask, if you'd like this to continue or maybe even expand from the current format, five-star reviews, written reviews, they are worth their weight in gold and maybe even platinum. So without further ado, let's get started this week. And we're going to kick it off with a really good one from MCHS B-Ball 13 in the podcast review. If you completely ignored current rosters and recent results and only evaluated based on natural path to success, how would you rank the jobs in the SEC? This is a good question, and it is not always a static environment. This list can move around. It can be fluid year to year. So as it sits right now, he's asking 1 to 14, how do you rank the jobs? Not the tradition, not the trophy case, but the job. If you're a coach, if you're a high-level coach and you have your pick. So I'm going to tell you what my criteria are here, and then I'll just go down the list and move on, and we can talk about it and chop it up as you see fit. I care that the athletic department and the fan base is fully invested. I care that I have plentiful financial resources, not only for my recruiting budget, but the ability to pay top money for my staff, the ability to build a huge network, an army of analysts and whatnot. I want to have great facilities. I want a commitment to continuously upgrading those facilities. I've got to have access to talent. I'd love to have an established brand and tradition too. I'd love to have that. That's not at the forefront because if I'm the best, if I'm truly one of the best in the business, I think that I can establish a brand. I think that I can build our tradition, but it is important to have nonetheless. Here are my rankings. I think all things equal, Georgia is the best job in the SEC. I think Alabama is number two. I would put Texas A&M at number three. And again, this is going off the concept that we're not talking about tradition. We're not talking about what has happened here. We're talking about what's capable of being accomplished. This has been the most underachieving program relative to what they're capable of in modern college football to me. You can take that as a knock if you want to. I would take it as a great compliment. My number four team in the SEC for jobs is LSU. Florida is five. Auburn is six. Tennessee is number seven. Tennessee could very, well, I won't say easily, Tennessee has it in themselves to elevate their job up this ladder a couple of rungs over the next few years. South Carolina, I have after that. Ole Miss and and, uh, Mississippi State, I had as interchangeable. I am not going to take a stance on one or the other. I put you guys right there next to each other. Then Arkansas, then Missouri, then Kentucky, then Vanderbilt. Moving on. M. Reed, 1994, podcast review section. I'm thrilled with the Caleb Williams commitment. That is, in case you guys missed it, our top-rated overall quarterback per the 24-7 sports recruiting rankings in the 2020 cycle. He said, I'm thrilled with that commitment, but also concerned with all the focus on offense. Is OU getting too offensive star power driven and not focused enough on defense? No, I don't think so, M. Reed. I don't think so at all. I certainly think you take as much offensive firepower as you can possibly get. Now, you don't sign... 25 offensive guys per class and say, oh, forget defense. I think they're doing a really good job there recruiting a different caliber athlete defensively. But just as important, I think when Alex Grinch got there, they did a healthy inventory of their roster and realized, I mean, to be frank with you, we've got some people here that don't need to be on this roster. We got guys here who are not the caliber football player that we need. So they started overturning the soil that they already had in the garden, so to speak, 
And that's been as important. They've really, if you look at their roster, I talked about this, I think, last week. If you compare last year's roster this time last year to this time present day, I mean, it, the other's recruiting, but also, I mean, aside from sprinkling in some new players from recruiting, they've also gotten rid of some guys that makes room for future players. It's not an overnight turnaround, though. It's not an overnight turnaround in the best of circumstances. But at Oklahoma, I mean, think about what it takes to convince the top defensive players in the country to come there. You're competing against programs that can show those kids, hey, we've already done it here. And then Oklahoma is trying to tell kids we could do it if you came. Latrell McCutcheon is a perfect example. You know, that's a guy who has bought into the vision that I can go to Oklahoma and I can be part of what establishes a defensive brand there. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, though. But no, I don't believe at all they're taking too many offensive guys. Next up, Elijah the Goat podcast review section. What went wrong with Shea Patterson? Well, I've had my own thoughts on this. I don't, I don't call many guys busts from a recruiting standpoint. And the reason is because modern day, especially scouting the quarterback position, modern day, I just don't think that our guys whiff a whole lot in a physical evaluation. But you have to understand, as I've talked about a million times before, and this is a million and one, you got to understand what a recruiting ranking is. A recruiting ranking, a star ranking, that needs to be taken for what it is, which is a raw talent-based rating on a player's ability to translate to the next level. Understanding all the while, it takes more than just what is encompassed in that recruiting ranking to actually be a good or great college football player. And some of the things that it takes to succeed at the next level, a guy like Barton Simmons could not possibly know about you. A guy like Andrew Ivins, Steve Wiltfong, they could not possibly know, for example, whether you will transition to college life well. Could you handle your personal business and academic business? Can you compartmentalize the way that you have to be able to do? Will you be surrounded by good people at the next level? Can you remain healthy? You know, Do you know how to mentally prepare in a game week? Do you know how to study film? Do you understand what full commitment and buy-in consists of? Now, I'm speaking generically here. I'm not talking about Shea Patterson. I don't know Shea Patterson personally. What I'm saying, though, is it's obvious he did not live up to pretty lofty billing out of high school. And I think a lot of people look at him and look at a guy in his situation and say, oh, he just sucked. Well, no, he didn't. No, clearly he did not. And if you want to call a guy like that a recruiting bust, need I remind you, if you want to go that route, not only did he have the recruiting industry fooled, think about his offer list. Uh, There were very few programs he couldn't have committed to if he wanted to. So we either believe that Every single knowledgeable football mind out there was fooled on Shea Patterson, or maybe there's just more to it than physical evaluation of a player when it comes to whether they succeed at the next level. Next up, Nev1, podcast review. What do you think the outcomes of Georgia versus Bama, LSU versus Florida, and Georgia versus Florida will be? And which team will be the highest rated G5? Nev, I would ever so slightly lean Alabama in Georgia-Bama. I have no lean right now in LSU-Florida. I have no lean in Georgia-Florida. And I can change my opinion on the first game. As for the top-rated G5 this year, I strongly lean Cincinnati. Really think they can do work this year. Nicole, podcast review. With Georgia, Bama, Clemson, and Ohio State all possibly replacing quarterbacks next year and Auburn having Georgia and Bama at home, could the Tigers shock the world with a third-year starter at quarterback in Bo Nix in 2021. Nicole, I have been around Auburn football long enough to know that nothing they would ever do would shock me. And if you had not been around them a long time, and you just remember the 2017 season, that's all you really need to remember. I told this story a couple of months ago. I'll give you the very condensed version. I was at the Auburn-LSU game in Baton Rouge 2017, That's the game where they got out to a big lead. LSU comes back. I don't say they gave it away. LSU took the game from them. And we're standing in the postgame press room. Malzahn's not in there yet. His wife is in there. You can hear members of the Auburn beat openly speculating about how perhaps he has just 
lost his job and it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to be fired and Christy Malzahn all the while is leaned up against a wall, uh, does not say a word. And then it was about five weeks later that he was beating the number one team in the country, 40 to 17. And then a couple of weeks after that, beat the new number one team in the country. This is Georgia and Alabama, respectively. Gets himself a new huge contract verbally agreed upon the week before the SEC championship game. And then they lose the SEC championship game. And then it was just a wild roller coaster. Like it was felt like 10 seasons played out over the span of one season. So no, Nicole, I don't, I don't think that if they went two and 10 or 14 and 0, 15 and 0 next year, either would shock me. That is Auburn football. That's what makes it fun to watch. And I got to imagine it's what just makes it maddening. If you're an Auburn fan. Next up, Nathan, podcast review section. This is fun. Nathan says, what is your favorite movie and what do you think the most underrated movie ever is? Field of Dreams is my favorite movie of all time. Twister is easily my most underrated movie of all time. Let me give you the reasons. The lasting images that people have from each of these movies is false. You may very well fall into this category. Think along with me. If you think about Field of Dreams... What do you think? You probably think of the quote, if you build it, they will come. But here's the problem. If you build it, they will come is never said in that movie a single time. If you build it, he will come is said multiple times. It's not about attracting a crowd to a baseball field, although that is the very, very, very final scene in the movie. That's not what it's about. I would contend Field of Dreams is not even a baseball movie. It's a movie where baseball serves as the backdrop, but it's about so much more than that, which is surmised in the If You Build It, He Will Come quote. Not to spoil a movie for you that's been out for 30 years, but with Twister, what is your lasting image of that? Probably a cow. Probably a cow flying through the air, which is just a travesty. Because that is this one little speck of humor that is taken out of a movie that is not a comedy. I mean, it's funny, but it's not a comedy. It's kind of like Scream. You know, Scream was funny, but people got killed throughout the entire movie. So what was it really? With Twister, it's almost like the makers of the film knew. Uh, most people probably aren't fascinated by tornadoes. So let's put this little slapstick piece of comedy in there where we put a cow flying through the air to put in the promos when this is shown on TBS for the next 30 years. And that'll, that'll appeal to people. Well, I'm not those people. I am an actual storm chaser. Okay. By hobby, not by trade. And so I've done this for quite a while. And the reason I love Twister is because number one, the cast was phenomenal. Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, there were a ton of heavy hitters on that cast. The soundtrack is out of this world phenomenal. You could also call that one of the most underrated soundtracks in movie making history. And also, it perfectly captured the subculture of chasing before storm chasing got really popular. Now in the summer, when you go out to the Midwest, the roads are clogged up with storm chasing tours. Well, back in the mid-90s, that wasn't the case. And yet the makers of Twister, and they had a big budget to do it, they perfectly captured the subculture of storm chasing that I've experienced. I love it. But those are the two answers that I'd have to give to that. Tom, podcast review. I think California, Georgia, Florida, and Texas are tier one recruiting hotbeds. What do you think about Louisiana? Is it reasonable to say Louisiana is at the very top of tier two, considering the talent we consistently produce at a number of positions down here? Yeah, Tom, I wouldn't mind if you put them at the bottom of tier one, personally. I am very fond of the athletes that come out of Louisiana. And the reason I say fond is because I talked to coaches. You know, I talked to one, not yesterday, day before yesterday. The date's not important. I talked to a coach recently, and they were telling me, they were comparing Texas and Louisiana. And a lot of people, a lot of coaching staffs for recruiting purposes, they don't define states. They define territories. You know, like if you're talking about Georgia, a kid from Vidalia, Georgia, and a kid from Norcross, Georgia are from two different worlds. So a coaching staff, like if you're at, let's say, Tennessee, or let's say you're at Texas, not a good example. Let's say you're at Ohio State, okay? Ohio State does not say the state of Georgia. They say the state of Atlanta, 
that's a recruiting term that a lot of insiders use, the state of Atlanta. They treat it as its own state. And then they may say South Georgia, like a kid from the Florida panhandle has a lot more in common with a kid from South Georgia than a kid from South Georgia has in common with a kid from Atlanta. Well, likewise, a lot of people view Louisiana and East Texas as being a part of the same recruiting territory. And I was talking to a coach the other day, and he was talking about the kind of player that you get out of Louisiana. Obviously, it's a bunch of individuals, but the average player that you get out of Louisiana, what they loved about the players from there is they don't come out with any kind of diva mentality. You don't have to de-recruit the kids from Louisiana nearly as much as you may have to de-recruit kids from other portions of the country, not naming any names, not naming any regions, because again, this is a very generic kind of uh, takeaway. But a lot of coaching staffs, they love going into Louisiana, number one, because of the kind of athletes they produce there. You know the per capita NFL draft numbers, but also because they love the mental makeup. They love the way that kids have been brought up and the way that the kids think and they compete and they grind. The typical player who comes out of Louisiana. So yeah, I don't have any problem with you saying that, Tom. Joe in the podcast review section. Right now, there are four good teams in the SEC West with the Mississippi schools on the rise. Is there a maximum number of good teams you can have in this division? Well, Joe, I've shared this before. The the dynamic that makes the SEC West so captivating is you only have room for two elite teams in that division. In any division, we're talking about elite in the context of college football, not just the conference. You only have room for two. And the problem is you've got four programs in the SEC West who invest at an elite level. They invest to the degree that they think the return on their investment should be college football playoff contention. Well, there aren't enough seats at the table. There are not enough wins to go around. So I'm a believer that you can have two elite teams and no more in a division. You can probably have four teams that are at least very good to elite, some combination. You've probably got room for five teams that are at least good. And there would be varying degrees there. You may have a couple of elites. You may have two very goods and then one good. But after that, you don't have room. Everyone can't be good. Everyone has to play one another. So what are we defining as good here? Ole Miss is not about to overtake Alabama in the next couple of years. But if Lane Kiffin had Ole Miss consistently winning eight games in this division, in this point in time, that would have to be considered a great success story. Who is it coming at the expense of? Because you do the math over here and quickly you realize, you know, if Alabama is Alabama, if LSU remains where they are, if Texas A&M and Auburn trend upwards in a typical year, if they maintain their status or trend upwards in a typical year, if you're Mississippi State, you're already an underdog in a minimum of four games. If a team like Ole Miss gets an edge on you, you're an underdog in five games out of your season. And that's just right off the bat. I don't even know who you're playing in your cross division game. I don't know who you're playing out of conference. And so quickly, you see how the snowball gets kicked downhill, and it's really tough to keep your head above water. Uh, no name in the podcast review section. I appreciate it nonetheless, but no name here. Texas and Texas A&M seem to be trending in the right direction, says no name. Who's in better position in five years? And do either have the capability to be tier one programs? All certainly both have the capability. In fact, it's a travesty both aren't already tier one programs. Texas and Texas A&M, five years from now, could meet in the college football playoff, as far as I'm concerned, and for all I know. Now, it takes the right formula. That starts with having the right man leading the program. Uh, with Jimbo Fisher, I've spoken about him in the last couple of weeks. I've got a little more confidence in him still right now than it seems like the majority does. But I understand why the majority has uh, their collective doubts. As for Tom Herman, I'm just not sold on Tom Herman yet. That's not to say he can't get it done, but you're talking about tier one here. You're not talking about competing for the Alamo Bowl or something like that. You're talking about taking teams to the brink of or taking them to the college football playoff. And, you know, there's a big hurdle, obviously, they have to clear in the Big 12, but it's not just the Big 12. You're trying to build a team that can go well beyond that. Can he do that? Well, he just made coordinator moves, two of them. Can they do that? Can they consistently be in that top five conversation recruiting? 
I don't know yet, but I know whether you got the right coach there or not, the ceilings for those two programs are certainly tier one ceilings. There is no box they don't check when it comes to what it takes. Next up, uh, No Name had two questions. And since he didn't, or she didn't, produce a name, but they gave good questions, I thought we'd just entertain both of them. Thoughts on Tulane. Many think Willie Fritz could be a future Power 5 coach. I think Will Hall, at offensive coordinator, will be a stud soon. Uh, Fritz is a, an interesting story here. Willie Fritz is a hot name right now in sort of the undercurrent conversation of, as you said, G5 coaches who could end up landing a Power 5 job. But the one thing you probably don't know about Willie Fritz, unless you're really familiar with him, maybe you're a Tulane fan, so you are, Willie Fritz is not 35 years old. He's 60 years old. He spent a long time at Central Missouri. I think he was at Sam Houston State. I mean, a good chunk of his career has been spent there. And there was promise when he came to Tulane, and I think they went seven and six a couple of years ago. And everybody last year had Tulane as one of their secret hot teams to watch. And, you know, this is one that could be a dark horse for this and that. Well, then they went seven and six again. And they were sloppy and they had a ton of penalties. I forget where they were. They were ranked in like the hundreds in penalties last year. And that was a disappointment for a lot of people. And they're in a league with Cincinnati and UCF and Memphis and you know, it would take a, a very tall effort to overcome those programs. This year, probably, I don't think a ton is expected of them this year on the national scene. So this year, if Willie Fritz is ever to make a move to the Power Five, I think this is the year where he would prove his worth and really validate a lot of the feelings that people started to have about him nationally over the last couple of years. Slade on Twitter I'd love your thoughts on LSU's video department this past season. Seemed like they were head and shoulders above everyone, and just in general, they were awesome. Yeah, they certainly were. I've told the story before about how I was in Tuscaloosa to cover the Alabama-LSU game. And that morning, uh, my phone blew up, and people were saying, have you seen this LSU video? Now, I thought that they were just saying, oh, look, LSU's video department put out another awesome video because that had kind of become their reputation last year. But it wasn't that. It was we had started late kick that spring, the spring of last year, independently at the time down in Columbus, and um, we had you know we had been on LSU very early. We were on that bandwagon just after the locals got on the bandwagon, and so uh, we had developed an instant following in LSU, and it got the attention of people at LSU. So come game day, Alabama versus LSU, they released their game day hype video, and it was a montage of guys like Stephen A. Smith. You know, it had a bunch of guys from ESPN, had guys from like CBS Sports, had guys from Fox Sports. And then it was me. And I say us because it's not an operation that I built. Me and, you know, people alongside me built the operation. But us, it was us and ESPN and CBS Sports. And it was like, what is happening? We had just put together this independent YouTube channel. And there we are right in LSU's game day video, along with all the big boys that you've seen and followed for years. So that was awesome. And that curried favor with me and, you know, made me respect those guys on a whole different level for obvious reasons. But I remember, you know, when Oakland, I, used to, I, I grew up an Atlanta Braves fan, but I always kind of liked the Oakland A's too, because back then, and by back then, I mean, in the early 2000s, Tim Hudson, who had grown up local to where I came from. He was playing in Oakland and they had uh, Mulder and they had Barry Zito and they had no budget. And so I really respected what they were doing out there. But I remember when the whole Moneyball thing, long before the movie, when Moneyball was implemented in Oakland, everyone kind of laughed at it. And then all of a sudden everyone adopts it. And I remember last year when LSU started putting out those videos, they weren't the first graphics or video editing department to ever put out videos like that. I mean, recruiting departments have been doing that for a while, but none of them had done it to the degree that LSU had. And so at first, people kind of say, oh, that's nice, whatever. But really, it's just kind of this defense mechanism because they didn't think of it first. Well, LSU got everyone's attention last year on the field but that was the beauty to me. The beauty was the entire program reflected this ascendance to greatness. And that included their video and graphics department. The video and graphics department did in their world what the football team did in their world. And that is what culture is all about. 
you may not think it matters, but, but consider this. If even one more elite recruit sees one of those videos and is influenced by it, you have warranted the entire budget for that department. That one kid could end up becoming Jamar Chase. Like That one kid could be Joe Burrow. So think about that. Don't even think for a second about what it does for the branding. I mean, that's awesome too. And it gets get your fan base involved. It may draw in neutral observers that are on the fence about who do I root for. You may build your fan base that way. And don't think for a second bandwagon fans don't matter. Don't think for a second sidewalk fans don't matter. They do. They very much do. So yeah, I thought it was great. I followed that all year long last year. Next up, Matthew on Twitter. I know you don't like playoff expansion and neither do I, but it's likely to come. I know you don't like auto bids for conference champs, but would you be in favor of the top four seeds hosting quarterfinal games? What would your ideal 18 playoff format look like? Yes, Matthew, you're right on all accounts. I don't support expansion. And even if expansion happens, I doubly don't support auto bids of any kind. No auto bids for conference champs. No auto bid for the G5. My ideal format is take the top eight teams at the end of the year, put them in the playoff. The day after Conference Championship Saturday concludes, for the purposes of the college football playoff, conferences don't even exist anymore. You have 130 teams, or whatever the number is that given year, you take the best eight. Yes, I would have quarterfinal games on home sites. That would be my ideal setup if you are dragging me into the world of an expanded college football playoff. We'll take a quick break here. When we come back, David asks the question that so many have asked before. What program is my very favorite to talk about and why? And we're back and here comes David from the Twitter DM. What is your favorite program to talk about and why do you like that program so much? David, I gave you a few because it just would not be smart business for me to only give you one. I was just talking about LSU. I love talking about LSU because I think I have a very firm grasp on the subculture of Louisiana, a lot more than maybe people a thousand miles to the northeast of them and uh, 2,000 miles to the west of them. And I'm talking about major national media hubs. You've got people that have never even so much as breathed a breath of Louisiana air trying to talk about the culture of Louisiana. Well, they don't have a clue about Louisiana. I do. I've been there. I talk to people from Louisiana all the time. I understand why Ed Orgeron meant so much to them last year. I understand, and I was talking about this this time last year, I understood that all these little digs that people were taking at Ed Orgeron, they were using it to their advantage. Like Ed Orgeron harnessed the idea that people thought he was a moron. Ed Orgeron harnessed the power of the culture of Louisiana, and he used people's misconception of him being a moron against them because he did like Dabo Swinney's done successfully. Dabo understood and understands that people had this concept of him that wasn't really him. But yet he could use it to his advantage. You know, everyone thought Dabo was this kind of, aw, shucks, might as well not even have a headset on, figurehead, kind of just kicked the can down the road, howdy doody. And he's an alpha competitor in real life. But hey, as long as someone wants to paint you like that, they have lower expectations for you and they hold you to a lower standard. And so you never get criticized. Well, Orgeron figured out, hey, I'm not an idiot. No idiot ever gets the head coaching job at Louisiana State University. But if these people want to joke around about the way I talk and want to joke around about what my record at Ole Miss was, more power to them. I'm not going to correct them. I'm just going to go win a national championship. So that was fun to watch last year. And I got that the whole time. Like I understood what was happening. They didn't. National guys didn't understand the joke was on them with LSU. So I love talking Louisiana for that reason and LSU for that reason. I love talking about Alabama. I grew up idolizing the big head coaches, the ones that I was too young to have seen in person. Paul Bear Bryant was one of those. And it's not lost on me that I actually not only get to watch, but get to cover and talk to Nick Saban, who is our generation's version of a guy like Bear Bryant, ironically, at the same school. And love the tradition of Alabama. I love talking about Georgia because I grew up in Georgia. So most of my buddies were Georgia fans. 
I love talking about Auburn because I grew up the closest geographically. I grew up the closest to Auburn of any major program. And I've seen the ebbs and flows sometimes in the same calendar year from that program. I love talking Notre Dame because I love the pageantry of college football. I openly root for Notre Dame to be great. Openly root for them. Those are some programs. That is certainly not an exhaustive list because to be honest with you, I mean, I love talking about any program that you are interested in. And I mean that. I love talking about any program you're interested in. A lot of times we'll get comments. It's always, it ceases to amaze me, never ceases to amaze me, rather. We'll get comments all the time. Hey, why don't you talk about so-and-so? And yet, I extend the invitation to you guys. Every podcast, notice what we're doing here. This podcast is 100% me answering your questions. I haven't come up with a single one of these topics. I talk about what you want to talk about. That's it. That's the entire format. It's virtually foolproof. And so the complaints about me not talking about something should be redirected to asking me a question about what it is you want to talk about. Well, I say that because I'm interested in and love talking about the programs that you're interested in. If you guys all of a sudden developed this fascination with North Dakota State, we would talk about them ad nauseum. Actually, just interviewed Matt Entz from North Dakota State yesterday. That's actually an interview that's being released later this morning. If you're listening Wednesday or beyond, it's already available on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Go check that out, by the way. Harry on Twitter. Could Memphis ever join a Power 5 conference? Say they join the SEC. Their basketball program could easily compete. Could it happen? That's Harry. Harry, anything could happen. But let me ask you this. There are two different ways that this potentially could go down. It could be that a conference like the SEC is looking to add to its portfolio. If that's the case, I don't think Memphis has a shot there. Number one, because I don't think Ole Miss or Tennessee would be on board, to say the least. And number two, you got to ask yourself this fundamental question. What do you have to offer the SEC that they don't already have? You may say basketball. Listen, the SEC thinks they're just fine in the world of basketball now. I think one of the benefits of this this flood of TV money that's happened over the last decade, less than a decade, actually, but still pretty new conceptually, I knew as soon as that happened, they couldn't spend all this money on football if they tried. And so there's a funny thing when you don't pay players. I'm not taking a stance on this one way or the other. But when you don't pay your players and you're making all this revenue, it does not behoove you to sit on that cash Think about how terrible that looks. If you, if you have tens of millions of dollars just sitting in the bank every year, every fiscal year, you're finishing with you know seven, eight, nine-figure surpluses, depending on if you count the cents or not, and your players aren't being paid. And so they got to spend the money. They got to spend the money. And I knew when, when those TV deals were signed and you saw what programs were going to get per year, they got to spend it. And I realized, you know what the SEC is about to collectively do outside of Lexington and, Lexington and uh, Vanderbilt and Florida? They're about to look around and say, hey, let's just kind of take basketball more serious. And they have. There's been a lot of investment to upgrading facilities across the conference. There's been a lot of investment to landing big coaches across the conference. And now you look a few years later, you could argue at any given time in the past couple of years, there were times where you could argue the SEC collectively was playing the best basketball in the country. This is not a college basketball podcast by any stretch, but you think about Memphis and maybe a generation ago, it would have been more prudent to say, oh, Memphis would be one of the best basketball programs in the SEC. Well, they still would be very good, but it's not something the SEC looks at and says, we need that anymore. The second way, and this is the more likely for Memphis to have a shot, is if you see this sudden shift towards expanding. And one of the models, model I happen to buy into, is seeing conferences go to 16 teams where you just have four kind of super conferences, quote unquote. I think that maybe if you had a conference, and it's probably not the SEC, but if you had a conference like, say, the Big 12 or the ACC, and and they're just in a situation where we got to add a couple of more teams, it's probably not the way it goes, but if it did go that way, that would be the shot that Memphis has or Cincinnati or Central Florida. That's probably the way that they get tacked on. 
Austin on Twitter. It's obvious the SEC West is the more dominant side of the SEC besides Georgia. If you could rearrange the SEC and move teams around, how would you do it and how would you make things equally talented? I wouldn't move a thing, Austin. I think that's very cyclical. You know, if you were to sit here in the 90s, the biggest rivalry in this conference was Florida versus Tennessee for a long time. Uh, Georgia has obviously proven that they can be an elite program, but there have been times in recent history where Tennessee has been an elite program. There have been times in recent history where Florida has been an elite program. South Carolina, we are less than a decade removed from them putting up back-to-back-to-back double-digit win seasons. There are programs over there that have proven that they can matter nationally, just as in the West. Alabama's proven that. Auburn's proven that. LSU's proven that. A&M, if they haven't proven it to you, trust me, they're certainly capable of it. I think it's pretty evenly balanced right now in terms of potential. It just so happens that the seesaw may be tilted west of the Chattahoochee River a little bit right now. I don't think that's something that lasts in 20 to 30 year increments. So I wouldn't change a thing. Next up, David on Twitter. Being born and raised in West Virginia, it amazes me how many great coaches have come from such a small state. Fielding Yost, Lou Holtz, John McKay, Rich Rodriguez, Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban, and more. My question is, does it make the state of West Virginia the pound-for-pound champion on producing head coaching talent? Always love the show. Go Mountaineers. Uh, David, I've always believed this. Ohio certainly has a claim as well, but think about this. And there's this triangle. You guys from West Virginia know what I'm talking about. There's this triangle even within the state. I don't know how many square miles it would consist of, but it's not a whole lot. Um, Who are the coaches? I know Fielding Yost is from Fairview. John McKay is from, it's either Evanton or Evertsville, I think. I should have looked this up. Uh, Nick Saban's from Worthington, and Jimbo Fisher's from Clarksburg. And if you were to put those dots on a map and connect them, it's just this little sliver. It looks like a, a land-based Bermuda Triangle. And it's these coal mining towns. And it's, it's so synonymous in your area, in West Virginia, with the way that farming is and agriculture is in South Georgia, kind of where I'm from. And that's not the only place you would find that culture, obviously. But it's these places where everyone knows everyone. The... the it's backbreaking. The lifestyle is a backbreaking lifestyle. The average life expectancy, I saw that recently in West Virginia, I think is 49th out of 50 states. And the reason is because of coal mining. The reason is because that's, that figure is not just a 2019-2020 figure. That figure has been compiled over decades and decades. And it's backbreaking work. But here's what it does. What it does is, number one, for people like me, it gives me supreme respect for anyone who comes from there. And number two, if you do come from there, no work is hard. Like, no work is too hard for you. Nick Saban has a schedule right now that perplexes most people. Jimbo Fisher, guys like that, they keep a schedule that perplexes most people. I knew a guy who was a grad assistant at Alabama when Saban, Saban's still there. So this was under Saban. And he is 22, 23 years old. And he told me, Nick Saban's not even going to know who I am, but here's what I'm going to do. The one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get there before him and I'm going to leave there after him every day. That's the one thing I can do. And it lasted about 10 days, less than two weeks it lasted. And he told me I couldn't do it. There there were times I got there earlier than him. There were some times that I left there after him, but I couldn't do it consistently. And I was getting there and basically being a zombie at my desk He is a machine. But the thing about it is, my buddy grew up where I don't think he had ever even understood the concept of dirt under his fingernails. Nick Saban, on the other hand, Fielding Yost, as you talked about, John McKay, Jimbo Fisher, those guys, it's a lifestyle. That's in your DNA. And I've got so, so much respect for people who come from West Virginia or in my world, who come from South Georgia and they grew up on peanut farms and you're working sometimes 16, 17 hour days for extended periods because there are seasons where you got to get stuff done. Compared to that, to think about the fact, this is why I have no time for people in our industry who complain about long days, when in reality you're getting to do 
for a profession what most people do for fun. If you work in a coal mine, the one break you have during the week is you get to, on Saturdays, watch West Virginia football. If you work on a South Georgia peanut farm, the one respite you have is a few Saturdays in the fall, you get to watch Georgia football. To think about the fact that there are people, there are grown men and women being paid to cover those sports who would dare complain, oh man, Georgia's, oh, they got Louisiana Monroe today. I got to go spend a whole Saturday doing that. That's not hard work. That's not hard work at all. I woke up at five o'clock this morning to do this podcast. That's not hard. It's not hard at all. What would be hard is if I had had to wake up 30 minutes earlier than that and go throw my overalls on and get the tractor out here and then go ride up and down rows for 16 hours in the middle of 95 degree heat. That's hard. It's harvest time down here right now. It's growing season down here right now. You ought to see the fields in South Georgia. And there are men and women working it every single day. That DNA, that's why a guy like Nick Saban is how he is. Jimbo Fisher is how he is. I love reading about that. You know what? You want to get some really good storytelling if you can ever hear those guys. I've heard Fisher and Saban in off-the-record settings talk about their upbringing. Fascinating. As good a stories as they could ever give about football. Moving on, Epic College Football in Twitter DMs. Say Georgia were to finish 10-2 and with losses to Alabama and Florida after finishing the past three regular seasons 11-1. and How would the public view of Kirby Smart change with a step back, even if it's slight, in 2020? I don't think the public view would change of him very much. The public view of Kirby Smart right now is that he is a very good coach trying to become great. And he's competing against great. You know, he's trying to overtake someone like Nick Saban, who is universally accepted as great. And since Kirby Smart hasn't done that, he's viewed as very good. That's not the perception that I'm focused on. The perception I'd be focused on, if they do indeed lose to Alabama and Florida this year, where the fan base is only thinking about taking the final step forward, if they were to take that slight step back, I'd wonder about Georgia fans. There's a long way between where Kirby Smart is now and any kind of hot seat whisper. I'm not talking about hot seat. What I'm talking about is just the general unrest that would result from the perception that, oh man, did we just take a step back? Like I thought, I thought this was a climb and we were just one step away from the mountaintop. No one told me that taking a step back could ever be part of this equation. That's why I think that Georgia Florida game is. Always interesting, but even more so interesting this year because I think both programs have that same mentality. And someone's got to take a step back by default. Jansen on Twitter says, I was wondering what the word is on Minnesota. Do you think P.J. Fleck can get them to a Wisconsin level of competition, competing for the West every year? Or will they fade into the background after overachieving last year? I personally like P.J. Fleck, but don't know much about the guys they can recruit up there. Jansen, I think the odds you'd have to say the odds are better than not that they peaked last year. Having said that, P.J. Fleck is a guy who proved himself at Western Michigan, proved himself last year at Minnesota, and could certainly, uh, quote-unquote, shock the world again. It's not out of the realm of possibility. The concern I always have for a program like Minnesota is as soon as they pop their head up, above the crowd, like they did last year, it gets everyone's attention. And since no one views Minnesota as one of the blue blood elites of college football, as soon as they do something good, everyone looks at them and says, all right, let's go take whatever we want over there. Kirk Soraka is a perfect example. Minnesota, at some points last year, looks better offensively than Penn State does. So Penn State says, let's just go take the coordinator. And that's not to say that anyone could just pillage and plunder Minnesota anytime they wanted to, but it's what my concern is. How do you keep together a program? Because as soon as you have success, people come and they try and take this guy, take that guy, and that's just the front-facing part of your program. You don't even know how many analysts or football operations managers maybe behind the scenes that you're losing that were integral parts of your operation that previous year. Ryan on Twitter How will USC be able to compete with schools like Bama and Ohio State who will see a significant increase in TV revenue from future conference TV deals? 
If those programs can spend more money, it seems like they'll have an easier time bringing in top recruits, especially with the national or not national name, image, and likeness rules or upgrading facilities. Well, Ryan, this is already a concern. Those programs are already spending a whole lot more than USC. Now, USC, in reality, is not the program that's ever going to hurt from this. And ironically, you mentioned name, image, likeness. Well, Ryan, what if I told you that a majority of the country is worried that name, image, and likeness could be used disproportionately to the advantage of USC, having the entire Los Angeles market behind you at your disposal? So I wouldn't necessarily worry about how name, image, and likeness is going to victimize USC. What I would worry about is just getting things in order out there, period. You cannot sell uh, an, an eight-win program to recruits, and just on average, I'm not talking about any given year, but on average, if you're hovering around that eight-win caliber plateau, you're not selling that to recruits as being comparable to what they offer you at Alabama, what they offer you at Ohio State, since those are the two programs you mentioned. Having said that, like I said, recruiting budgets, TV money, name, image, likeness, that stuff's not going to victimize USC unless USC allows themselves to be victimized by it. What I would worry about with the disproportionate TV revenue and name, image, likeness is how do programs like Washington, Utah, how do programs like that stay afloat? How do they compete in the modern world moving forward? That's what I would be concerned about. And that's not a USC problem. That's more of a Pac-12 problem. Jack, on Twitter, this is a very common question where I'm from, folks. Is this the year Georgia puts everything together and has that LSU-like season? I mean, the recruiting has been outstanding. There's talent and depth on both sides of the ball, and Georgia might finally have a quarterback that can put them over the top. As I said, this is the million-dollar question. This is what everyone's hoping down in Georgia. They're hoping that defense is what you think it will be, and what I think it'll be is the best unit in the country. I've been clear about that. So the thinking, it's not hard to follow this train of thought. Well, we got an elite defense, and the only thing we've been missing is the right quarterback and the right play caller. Now, I've not been shouting play calling like some of these guys down here that I hang out with have been, only because there is no offensive game plan that the head coach doesn't sign off on. So James Coley took a beating last year. Well, you got your wish. He's out. Todd Munkin's in. You didn't have spring to prepare, but you got your transfer quarterback and Jamie Newman. And so... You know, you got some some receivers that needed seasoning a year ago that you hope have it this year. Offensive line, maybe a question mark. Question marks don't always equal weaknesses. There are a lot of four and five star options to plug into those question marks. Running back position, they have good backs there every year. And so you hope, man, if we can get that to click, then who's to stop us? It sounds so easy. Oh, it sounds so easy. I don't know. And the reason I don't know, I don't think anyone can know is, I have no way to know what Kirby Smart's offensive philosophy is. I can hear him in a press conference. I can hear what he says when he hires a new coach. When they open camp eventually, I can hear what he says they're going to try and do. I can hear all that. I got to see it, and you got to see it. That's when we'll know whether George is capable of doing anything like LSU did. Next up, Blake, YouTube comment section. Do you think that if there are no fans in stadiums this year, the more talented team is almost guaranteed to win without the factor of a crowd? No, Blake, I think that the outcomes will largely mirror a typical season. The most talented team usually wins the game anyway, but I always stop short of saying that. I used to say that all the time. I used to say, well, so-and-so is the more talented team. What are we really going off there? Here's the fact of the matter. Most people who use that term could not scout talent if their life depended on it. And I'm including myself here. If you put me in a film room to diagnose the characteristics and traits of a defensive back, and I were sitting next to a defensive back coach, I would make a fool of myself in all likelihood. I watch the game, I follow recruiting, and I, I would like to think that maybe I have a pretty good grasp on the game relative to the casual viewer, but I'm not a coach. And I'm not a, uh, I'm not a professional uh, you know, draft analyst, for example. When I say analyst, I mean guys who work inside the industry. So I don't evaluate film seven hours a day for a living. Who in the world am I to evaluate who's more talented? And secondly, even if we are, 
able to definitively conclude that Auburn is more talented than Arkansas. Well, how do we know in any given year these specific teams notwithstanding? Generic statement here. How are we to know which program has done a better job of converting their talent into skill? And having said that, that's beside the point. The the outcomes, if you were to take the outcomes from this season and look at them 50 years from now and you don't even remember, oh, that was the COVID year, I don't think that the results on any given Saturday will look all that much different. Execution still wins. Talent still matters. Skill still matters. Obviously, you got to have players to win, but execution still matters. Not having your home atmosphere, yes, it's a detriment to you, but you know sometimes the more talented team is the road team. Sometimes the more talented team is the home team. So I really think that all that kind of, it evens out in the wash probably. Misfit Smurf on YouTube. How quickly can we expect Georgia Tech to improve on the field from year to year? How much of an advantage does being located in Atlanta provide to Georgia Tech when the NCAA relaxes name, image, and likeness rules? This is a big deal. Georgia Tech, to me, said it for two years now, is the best example of a, quote, sleeping giant, unquote, in college football. No one looks at Georgia Tech and thinks that they have top-end potential that could garner you know, year in, year out, top 10 caliber play. I do. Most people think that their academic requirements are an albatross around their football neck. I don't. I also think they have the right coaching staff there right now. They have finally harnessed what so many people have failed to do at Tech. They have harnessed Atlanta to their advantage. They have leveraged Atlanta to their advantage. It's inexplicable that a Power 5 program has existed in the capital of college football at the intersection of the ACC and the SEC and not done a thing with it. Georgia Tech football has not moved the needle in Atlanta for way too long. They don't matter in their hometown as much as four or five major programs not from Atlanta matter. People talk Alabama football in Atlanta more than they talk about Georgia Tech football. You got to change that. And I think that they have the staff there to do it. And with name, image, and likeness, and them already understanding that the DNA of this program needs to be Atlanta. We need to be a program associated with Atlanta. And then you think about the opportunities, not only that you have there, think about the alumni base you have. You want to have a fun afternoon or a five-minute portion of your afternoon? Go check out the average salary of a Georgia Tech graduate. It will blow your mind. And guess where those average salaries are residing? Probably on the top quarters of the floors of various high-rises in downtown Atlanta, but all around the country, all around the world. Tech has got a massive, not only endowment, but alumni base. Limitless opportunities for the Jackets with name, image, and likeness. I agree with you here. Jeff on YouTube, can you explain recruiting rankings? What's the difference between having the number one class and five class? What if you finish a recruiting year top 15? Could you compete for a national championship if you don't consistently have top five classes? Yes, you can, Jeff. Clemson has done that already a couple of times. Clemson now has ascended to where they are a top five annual recruiter. They were not that when they started this run. What they were is, or what they were was, they had a superstar quarterback in Deshaun Watson, and they had a very good roster. They had a top 15 roster. And then they had a superstar quarterback. You get a superstar quarterback, you can win. I mean, you get a superstar quarterback and you can redefine what your program is. And then as you redefine what your program is, you can also attract the talent necessary to put together annual top five classes. That's what I wait for Penn State to do. That's what I wait for Notre Dame to do. There are a number of programs out there that fit this description. Clemson... I think laid out a blueprint that a number of other programs could follow. But recruiting, I mean, to figure out the rankings are very simple. Maybe some listen to this and they don't understand this process. It's fascinating once you do understand it. I would go to 247sports.com. I would click on the football recruiting tab. Go click on team rankings and just peruse. You can see who's ranked who where right now. You can check out the player rankings And, you know, it's just a simple, it's a numeric rating, but it's also a star-based rating. Those grades are updated every month. And there is continuous evaluation from our scouting department and our staff here 
very extensive grades that are in very extensive research that's done on assigning those grades for guys. And, you know, whoever lands the most high caliber players, it all goes into their final grade. And that is how recruiting class rankings are determined. Jake in the email inbox. Football, perhaps more than any other sport, relies heavily on mental toughness, grit, and confidence, qualities that can't be quantified, measured, or produced in a lab setting. I believe Scott Cochran's program at Alabama instilled those qualities. I was at the 2012 Saban football camp. Cochran ran the show at the camp, and I understood at the time his staff simply kicked your butt before you even started to practice. Having these experiences in memory, I can't help but wonder if his departure will see that level of intensity leave with him. Looking through Dr. Matt Ray's Twitter, he is clearly brilliant, but it's unclear if the intensity will be there due to differences in philosophy. Do you think this is possible? Uh, Jake, I understand where that sentiment comes from. I don't think intensity is going to be a concern for Alabama. I don't think it's going to be a concern at all. Number one, uh, because I wouldn't so much look to, let's say, Dr. Matt Ray as the source of the intensity behind that program. Dr. Matt Ray is half of the sports science combo they hired to replace Scott Cochran. I would look, A, towards David Ballou, who is the other half of that. And number two, you know, Scott Cochran was not the only energy provider on that staff, as is the case with any major program. You have a strength and conditioning team. You got one coach, maybe, but you have a team and they're all like these miniature versions of your strength and conditioning coach. Uh, there were three or four other dudes who acted like psychopaths in a good way on Alabama's sideline along with Scott Cochran every Saturday. I've been around Alabama for a while. I've seen it. I don't think that the intensity is going to lack at all with Alabama. And that's passed down from the very top. What I do think they're going to gain is regain their foothold right at the top of the leading edge of the sports science aspect, along with strength training aspects of the sport, where I think, and many inside that program thought that they had fallen behind recently. Robbie, email. Do you think LSU's defensive production will take a step forward or backward with Bo Pelini returning? You know, Robbie, I had the questions that a lot of other people did. I think these are natural. It's not doubting, it's just questions. You know, Bo Pelini, we, we know where he's been for a long time, and we know where he was last time he was a coordinator. But the point I keep coming back to is Ed Orgeron is sold on Bo Pelini. So if he's sold on him, I'm not going to doubt him. I learned my lesson last year. I, I'm not going to be the one to doubt him. I think they'll be fine this year and moving forward under Pelini. Dylan, email. I'm curious what makes a head coaching job more attractive. I understand every coach has certain things and they look for maybe a few different things, but what in general makes a job attractive? Well, this is what it comes down to for me, Dylan. What's the expectation level? And does the investment level warrant the expectation level? If you've got a place that's expecting you to contend for playoffs, then you better have that level of investment. If you don't have that level of investment, that's fine, but don't expect me to contend for playoffs here. That's really all it comes down to for me. David, email. I was wondering, could you disseminate your position on Arizona State under Herm Edwards and the direction you believe they are headed? I've always believed, David, Arizona State has a perennial top 15 caliber potential. Now, right now, where they sit is they have obviously a former NFL head coach in Herm Edwards. They have a former NFL head coach as their defensive coordinator in Marvin Lewis. They had a top 25 class last year. Right now, very slow start. I um, think they're in the 70s, but it's the name of the game for them is recruiting. That's always the question that anyone has, myself included, when guys come from the NFL into the college world, how do you handle recruiting? And right now, it's a remains-to-be-seen situation at Arizona State. Cody, email. I know you've said the only thing that would motivate Notre Dame to join a conference is missing the playoffs because of not having a conference championship game. Well, do you think COVID could have any effect on that? Yeah, Cody, I think it could it was one of the first questions I had back in the spring when we were wondering what would happen with the college football season. And people started to say, well, maybe conferences will just play conference games only. Well, that's all well and good if you are Kentucky. But what if you're Notre Dame and you're not in a conference? And now what I think would happen there is they would strike a temporary deal with the ACC. That's what I think would happen and they would work it out and hopefully it doesn't come to that. Bryce, email. 
How do the big boys down south like Georgia and Alabama view the tier two Big Ten programs like Michigan, Penn State, and Wisconsin? I know you said they view Ohio State as one of their own. Yeah, uh, this is, by the way, Bryce has asked me to speak for Alabama fans and Georgia fans, not for myself. I would tell you those fan bases look at Ohio State and they say, that is our equal. I would say they look at Michigan and Penn State and they say, those are former giants. We don't think they can get enough athletes to match us. But in any given year, maybe they could put it together and, and make a run. I think they look at Wisconsin and they respect the style of play because it reminds them of the way that they either do it or used to do it. But they always think that the roster will be inferior to theirs. That's a succinct way to let you know how fan bases down here would think about those programs. A couple of more here. Daniel, email inbox. Indiana football is historically one of the worst teams in college football. They've been undoubtedly doing better, but their last three bowl games have all been lost by a field goal or less. What does it take for a team like Indiana to turn a corner? Given they're in the Big Ten East, that's pretty much three guaranteed losses. Is it even possible for them to turn the corner? Daniel, I got to shoot straight with you, brother. I don't think so. I mean, I guess anything's possible, but even if it were to happen... Same concern I gave you with Minnesota, even more so with Indiana. If it were to happen, if they went 10-2 and this year, think about what would happen to every successful facet of that program. Any coordinators would be snatched up by a major program. Head coach snatched up by a major program. I mean, heck, in the future, uh, when the transfer portal continues to become more and more a popular option in the offseason, you may have to worry about re-recruiting half of your roster because Programs out there that are superior to you uh, in nefarious manners may be coming after your players. So I don't think long-term it's very possible there. Dwayne wraps us up. What does Georgia high school football do differently that results in so many high-target recruits? And how can Georgia Tech and Georgia do a better job of keeping Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and so many others from taking the cream of the crop? Let me work backwards here. I don't think anyone takes the cream of the crop out of Georgia. Singularly. Now, collectively, you may in any given year have seven or eight of the top 15 kids leave the state, but they're not going to one program necessarily. That's I know, Dwayne, that's why you mentioned multiple programs. Well, what makes Georgia so great is also the reason why a lot of guys leave the state. Atlanta, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, is kind of its own state. Very transient in nature. Transient just, of course, meaning a lot of people who are there are not from there. And as a result... You got a kid who lives in Birmingham versus a kid who lives in Atlanta. The kid in Birmingham is 10 times more likely on average, well, maybe not quite 10 times, but he is far more on average likely to have come up in Birmingham and had parents who lived in Birmingham or somewhere in Alabama than the kid in Atlanta. Uh, Columbus is the second biggest town in Georgia. Columbus is right next to Fort Benning, military base. So there are a lot of people coming and going there too. And so when you talk about and when you think about it, Macon's the same way. And so when you think about the kids in Georgia, sometimes you got kids who were born and bred Georgia Bulldog, red and black from the day that they could walk and talk, and they're going to Georgia. But just as easily, you could have kids who, you know, grow up in Decatur, grow up in Norcross, grow up in Alpharetta. And, you know, they like Georgia, but they like some other programs, too. They watch all the teams on Saturday. And, you know, my mom grew up in Dallas, and my dad was born in Louisville, and we just kind of reside here, and that's where we settled. But my roots aren't here. So it's hard. Georgia's not a state that you could ever lock down. Even when you're flying high like Georgia is right now, you're not locking it down. But you, you land the majority of the big-time kids in state, and then you recruit nationally, too, like Georgia has. You won't have a problem. With Georgia Tech, that's why I think Atlanta is so important you got to give kids in Atlanta a reason to understand there is an option right here in my own backyard where I can go not only and I can win, I can compete, but there's this academic opportunity they offer that really nobody else around here offers. And so I can go there, I can play football, I can get a degree and pretty much guarantee myself millionaire status by the time I'm 35 if I don't screw it up myself. That's a pretty unique pitch that not many other programs can offer. All right, guys, really, really appreciate it. Got a good hour's worth of questions and answers there today. As always, I ask you humbly, and I ask you consistently, give us five-star reviews. We are approaching 300 now. I think we should be approaching 1,000. I don't see any reason why you guys can't do it. I just ask, and I check every day to see if you follow through yet or not. We uh, are going to be back here same time next week. 
Remember, if you haven't already, check out Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. That's every Thursday and Sunday night at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. If you haven't already, subscribe there too. Everything I'm asking you to do is free. No one sends you any emails. No one harasses you. It's just you are subscribed there and you stay in tune with everything that we're producing. And this has been a very fun morning to record this. So again, if you want to get in touch, joshpate706 at gmail.com at Late Kick Josh on Twitter. You can also submit questions via the comment section on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Any episode of Late Kick Live, if you look under it, I pin a comment and I say, reply to this comment with your questions. So there are a number of ways you can get in touch with me. Until next time, for myself, for Tani, who is about to get down to work editing this podcast for your listening pleasure, really appreciate it. We'll see you guys again next week. God bless. God bless.